dear friends, in the second letter of Paul to Corinth, to Corinth Paul faces actually quite a, uh, a difficult, and actually I think the word we would use in our own day is quite an awkward problem. He's in a rather awkward position. He's in an awkward position because uh, the church that Paul has established at Corinth is beginning to question whether Paul really is an apostle. And of course, uh, Paul claims to be an apostle. Right? If you turn to the very first verse of this letter, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. In other words, I didn't make myself an apostle, but God himself called me and made me an apostle. And of course, an apostle in the New Testament church, my friends, uh, well, first of all, an, an apostle is basically somebody like, we, today we would call like a missionary, a person who goes to unreached peoples. But in the New Testament context, an apostle is also one who has witnessed the Lord Jesus Christ. He's witnessed the risen Christ, and therefore he bears a special kind of unique authority in the New Testament church. Now, I know sometimes we, we look around and we see a, a, a church and it says, uh, you know, apostle so-and-so is the pastor of this church, or apostle this, or apostle that, right? And, and technically we have to object to that, right? Because uh, apostles were unique in the New Testament church. They had seen the risen Christ. And therefore, uh, we don't have apostles today. Uh, nobody has seen the risen Christ. So we have uh, Paul. He claims to be an apostle. However, different people have begun to infiltrate into the Corinthian church at this time, and they're beginning to sow seeds of doubt that Paul isn't really an apostle. And, and they have other criticisms of the apostle Paul. I'd like to look at some of those criticisms with you. Uh, in this first point. So if you would turn with me, and again, I, my, my text comes from 2 Corinthians 3, but really kind of looking at the, the whole letter today, because the whole letter of 2 Corinthians is Paul defending himself. Now, I say this is kind of an awkward position for Paul, because you might say Paul kind of has to, not to use a, a modern-day expression, he has to toot his own horn a little bit, right? He has to, he has to, he has to do the rather awkward thing of... of, of arguing that he is a person of superior authority and he needs to be he has the right to be heard. Of course Paul doesn't like that. It doesn't sound very humble, does it? Right? And you're going to hear lots of that in in this epistle. That Paul is defending his right to be an apostle, he's defending his right to be heard by the Corinthian believers. But it puts him in an awkward position. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Because the first criticism that it seems the people are making of the apostle in Corinth, is that he's rather timid. In fact, what the uh, critics have said is, Paul, he's quite timid when he's in person. When he's talking with you face to face, he's timid, he's weak, he's not, he's not all that respectable. Now, when he's away from you, when he's writing a letter, then he's firm and bold and rigorous. So they were, they were making that criticism. And Paul responds in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 1, he says, now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Ah, you see how Paul is already starting to defend himself, right? Who was meek and gentle? Jesus was. So if you're accusing me of being meek and gentle, it's because I'm following in the footsteps of my master. Again, in Second Corinthians, it's actually a very difficult, it's one of the most difficult books in the Bible to understand because there's so much uh, uh, rhetoric in here that is, um, you have to read between the lines so many, 
places in 2 Corinthians. It's actually, I think it's one of the most difficult books in the New Testament to understand. But at any rate, now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when, I, when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I suppose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. So here's Paul defending himself, right? Saying that, indeed, when I'm with you, I want to be loving and kind and meek and gentle, just like Jesus was, right? So that's the first criticism that is made. And, uh, and Paul goes on to, uh, to defend his, this criticism that he was timid face-to-face, but bold when far away. Now the second criticism is that Paul is not just a weak and timid person, he's also a poor speaker. In the ancient world, my friends, uh, there were many of these traveling uh, teachers who, would, who, would, who went around the countryside uh, tr- uh, speaking, and they were known for their very skilled rhetoric. They were politicians in the finest sense of the word, uh, that they could, they could spin a phrase, they could turn a phrase, just they had such uh, a fine-tuned skill of rhetoric. Well, Paul didn't match up to that. He wasn't a great rhetorician. He wasn't a great speaker. In 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, we see another criticism. For, they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. In other words, he's not a good orator at all. He doesn't have good speaking skills. And again, you see the the criticism coming out there. Then in his in the in the in the third criticism, and here I, I'm not going to point you to a specific verse in, in the in the in the letter here, but basically throughout the letter, the critics are saying Paul he boasts in his own achievements. He's a boaster. He's proud of what he's done. He's an arrogant kind of man who wants everybody to listen to him. This is another thing that you find in Paul. And I found it interesting that when I did a search in my English Bible for the word boasting, or boast, by far the greatest number of instances of that word were in this second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Paul talks a lot about boasting. Uh, And again, just to give you uh, a a reference, if you stay right there in chapter 10, in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, for we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure. But within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. And so on. He talks about boasting. The fourth criticism. The fourth criticism is uh, this is the claim that Paul is not really an apostle. Now, this is kind of a strange uh, claim to make. But the critics evidently were saying that Paul isn't an apostle. He's not a true apostle. And the reason is because he's not willing to accept the remuneration or the pay that apostle is entitled to. Now, my friends, you have to know that when Paul went to these cities, the various cities that he visited on his missionary journeys, he would often uh, receive support from those cities. Not so much different than my own livelihood. It depends on your generosity. But when Paul went to Corinth, he did something completely different. He refused to accept any uh, money from the congregation itself. He would not take any money from them. And he insisted on laboring himself. And so he became a tent maker, 
right? And we even use that expression today. A tent maker is a person who labors in the ministry, but is also bivocational. He has some other job by which he helps to support himself. This is what Paul did in Corinth. And the critics latch on to that and say, look, he doesn't even think of himself really as an apostle because he's, doesn't even, he's not even willing to accept the, the pay or the remuneration all right, that, a, that an apostle is entitled to. Now in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 5, you can see what Paul says, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. And then in verse 6, he even continued, we had this one already, but even if I am unskilled in speech, right, there's Paul talking about he's not a, a great uh, orator. But anyways, you can see very clearly that Paul lays claim to be a, an apostle. But then he continues in verse 7, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself? And by, by humbling himself, he's talking about in refusing to accept any pay from the Corinthians so that you might be exalted, because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. You see, he labored for himself. He, he made tents to provide for himself. He didn't have his hand out asking for money from the Corinthians. He says, I robbed other churches, in verse 8, by taking wages from them to serve you. In other words, he still accepted remuneration from other churches, but he would not take any from the Corinthians. By the way, I think you, you probably can tell by now that the, the church in Corinth was Paul's problem church. It was a difficult church to manage. And, and he had lots of issues uh, with the Corinthian church. And he, in verse 9, he continues, And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. So, he will not accept remuneration from the apostles. You can, you can also see in that same chapter, chapter 11, verses 12, But what I am doing, I will continue to do, so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and so on. Again, these false apostles that Paul was speaking about, they came into Corinth with their hand out, right? They were looking for that money from the from uh, the Corinthian church. But Paul refused it. And you can see that Paul even, again, kind of quote-unquote, is boasting of that. right? I'm not going to take your money. So that's the fourth criticism. Then the last and fifth criticism is related to this because uh, turn back with me to 1 Corinthians now in chapter 16. In 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1, there was one matter on Paul's heart that was very that lay heavy on his heart. And in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1, you read that Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints. Now this collection that Paul was seeking to take was not for himself. This collection was for the saints in Jerusalem. The, the, the Christians in Jerusalem were very much persecuted. They were under a great deal of persecution from the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. And so naturally they were very poor as well. And it lies heavy on Paul's heart, their condition and their poverty. And so he's making a collection. The Corinthian Christians, many of them, were probably rather wealthy. The, as you know, the, the city of Corinth was a very wealthy city. And so Paul is asking for money, not for himself, but for the saints in Jerusalem who are struggling, who are living in great poverty. But now even for that, the critics are getting after Paul. And now you can turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 12. 
because of this collection that Paul is asking them to contribute to, Paul also is being criticized. So in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 16, Paul writes, But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. In other words, I did not ask for you for any money. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Now here again, my my friends, you see how Paul is speaking. Uh, uh, He's almost being a little satirical here, isn't he? I tricked you guys, he says. Okay, And not that he really tricked them, right? But he's trying to convey to them that, listen, uh, I'm not the, you accuse me of being deceitful. And it's almost as if Paul is kind of kind of playing with them here. He's kind of, he's using this, this language to kind of say, yeah, I'm a real trickster, I am. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trick you. I'm going to deceive you out of your money. And look what he says in verse 17. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? And then uh, go back to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 20. Now Paul is going to speak specifically about this gift that he was supposedly tricking. Right? He's, again, Paul is speaking somewhat facetiously here, right? I'm going to deceive you. I'm going to trick you. I'm going to get money out of you one way or another, says Paul. And in in chapter 8 and verse 20, Paul addresses this. And he says, uh, well, actually, back up to verse verse 17. Verse 17. So 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 17. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame is in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, that is, this work of collecting money for the Jerusalem saints, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our readiness, taking precaution. In other words, Paul says, I sent Timothy to you to make this collection, but we're taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with him our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. So Paul is saying, listen, I am taking every precaution to make sure that this money that I'm collecting for the Jerusalem saints is being administered in perfect integrity. And that this man, this uh, Timothy, I believe it was, who he was uh, had, had entrusted with this, is a trustworthy man who can be regarded or relied on to do it well. Well, this is Paul's reputation. These are the five criticisms that Paul makes, and now Paul begins his defense. And now we can turn back to 2 Corinthians and chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul makes his defense. And in the first place, my friends and brothers, what a, what a, this speaks to you in your office as elder and deacon. Because Paul, in the first place, goes back to his call. His call. 
In 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 5, you see what Paul says here. Not that we are adequate in ourselves. And by the way, the title of the sermon this morning is Competence. And that is because many translations translate this word adequate as competence. Not that we are competent in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy or our competence is from God. And then here it is. Here's Paul's call. Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. You see how Paul, he he goes back to the call that God gave him. Paul goes back to that place just outside the city of Damascus where God struck him down to the ground with a blaze of light and spoke to him and called him into the ministry. And my friends, Paul often returns to that moment. He returns to that memory to find strength for his work. So Paul goes back to his call. But Paul also has another reason why he believes himself entitled to the office of apostle. And look at the beginning of this chapter. So 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 1. And notice how Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Again, here you feel something of Paul's, how awkward this is to him. He hates defending himself. He hates defending himself and, and his right to be an apostle. Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? And then Paul says, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. My friends, in those days, it was no different than in our day. People often received letters of recommendation, right? If you're going to apply to a university, they are going to ask you for two, three, or four letters of recommendation. If you're going to apply to a job, people are looking for those letters of recommendation. And Paul says, do I need a letter of recommendation? Is that what you're looking for from me? Well, I don't have one written with ink, says Paul, but I've got something far better. I've got something far better, and that is your transformed life. Remember, the city of Corinth was a Greek city. It's a Gentile city. These people lived in terrible sin. It was like the Las Vegas of the old world, of the ancient world. And Paul says, look at you before Christ and after Christ. Now, that transformation that took place by the grace of God in your life from sin to holiness, that's my letter of recommendation. That's my proof that God is working through me to establish his kingdom in this place. That is Paul's, uh, the results of Paul's ministry. And upon that basis, he defends himself. You are my letter of recommendation. But then Paul also turns to his message, to the message that God had given him to preach. Because this too shows that God is working through Paul to transform the lives of these people and to let them, to make them to be his letter of recommendation. And Paul says in verse 6, who made us, that is God, made us adequate or competent as servants of a new covenant. A new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now Paul is talking about his message. And he says, this is my message. My message is basically an unfolding of the covenant of grace of the glorious covenant that God made with Jesus Christ and which he now calls us to participate in. That's the covenant of grace, and Paul calls it a new covenant because he's contrasting it with the old covenant. And I gave you this table, my friends, to help you think through this, this message of Paul of the new covenant. Because Paul says the old covenant 
was marked by the law without the Spirit of God. Notice it says, the letter. That's what he calls the Old Covenant, the letter. But the New Covenant is the letter of the law with the Spirit of God. Now, I believe we talked about this some time ago. But you know, my friends, that in our unregenerate state, if I come to you with the law of God and I hold it to you and I say, this is what you have to do. Obey the commandments of God. You're going to fail, right? You're going to die. It's going to kill you. It's going to be a ministry of death, as Paul says. But now what God does in the covenant of grace, my friends, he does other things. But one of the things God does in the covenant of grace, or the new covenant, is he gives us the law. But he also gives us the spirit of God within us. He gives us the indwelling spirit who empowers us, who changes our hearts, so that we begin to love the law of God. And Paul says, this is what I saw happen in the city of Corinth. You Gentile Christians, you never knew the law. But I unfolded to you the riches of God's covenant, and you believed in Christ. And because you were joined to Christ by faith, you received the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God made you willing and able to keep God's commandments. So when we look at this chart here, my friends, let's look at what Paul says. And if you want to write these things down, in that first row, what do we read in verse 6? The law without the Spirit kills. You could write that down in that first blank there. Kills. It is a ministry of death, Paul says in verse 7. Right? Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills. The letter kills. And later he says in verse 7, but if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones. But the law with the spirits, and now I'm jumping to the blank to the right. The law with the spirit, verse 6, I think you know what this is, right? If the letter kills, right? The spirit gives life. Life. The old covenant, the law without the spirit of God, kills. The law with the spirit of God, life. Down to the second row, we read in verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation, there's the second one, condemnation. The law without the Spirit condemns. We always fail. My friends, we experience this in our own life of faith, don't we? That when we try to keep the law of God in our own strength, when we try to keep the law of God in the, in the, in the sense that we're going to try to earn God's favor, condemnation is the result. Condemnation. And in verse 9, we read the law with the Spirit if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness. There's the key word for that second blank. Righteousness. The law with the Spirit gives righteousness. The law without the Spirit brings condemnation. Now, verse 9, staying in verse 9 and going down to that third spot there, verse 9, we read that the ministry of condemnation has glory. You can write that in there, glory. But moving to the right, the law with the Spirit abounds in glory. Glory, yes. Paul is saying the Old Covenant had glory. It was glorious. But the New Covenant abounds. It superabounds in glory. In fact, look what Paul says. He says in verse 10, For indeed what had glory, that's the Old Covenant, in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. It's kind of like the glory of the moon. It's bright. We see it. It's awesome. But when the sun comes up, that the moon completely disappears. The moon has practically no glory at all when the sun comes up because the sun completely uh, outshines it. 
And Paul says the old covenant was glorious, but the new covenant is like the sun, and it completely outshines it. And then the last blank there in verse 11. We read that the old covenant fades. Verse 11, you can write that in that last, on the left-hand column, the fourth co- the blank there, fourth row. The old covenant, the law without the spirit, fades. In other words, it is fading away. It is going away, just like the moon fades out of sight when the sun comes up. But the law with the spirit, or that new covenant, remains much more that which remains is in glory. This is the message, my friends, that Paul brings. His defense of his apostleship and the message which he brings. Brothers, I close the message in by speaking very directly to you this morning, both you who are being installed newly and those who are already installed. And I just ask this question, this question which will instantly pull the rug right out from under your feet. Are you competent elders? Are you competent deacons? Am I a competent pastor? You know, Paul had the same question, right? This is, this is the awkward situation he's in in 2 Corinthians, is trying to defend his right to be heard by these people. And I can ask you the same question today. Are you competent to do the work that you've been called to do? Or do you have to say with Paul, Our adequacy or our competency is from God. My friends, I believe that just as as Paul, and by the way, I, I can even speak to the whole congregation because we all are called to a ministry, right? These brothers are called to this special ministry at this time. But with God's call comes provision. Listen to these texts. Isaiah 42, verse 6. God says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness And I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. My friends, what Scripture teaches us and what Paul would have us to know is that where God calls, he gives competence. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. Isaiah 43, 1. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Right? So all those things, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Those two things always go together. And in 1 Peter 5, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. I ask you again, brothers, are you competent? And you can answer that question boldly and clearly this morning, yes, I am competent in the call that God has placed upon me. And brothers, uh, when the work of the ministry grows difficult, when the work of the the ministry grows long, when you have those confrontations that you have to make, those difficult visits, perhaps the disagreements, even amongst ourselves, that uh, are sure to arise, we all must go back to 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 that call of God upon us by which he makes us competent to do the work that he's called us to do. I also ask you in the second place, brothers, to remember the message. Remember that we are ministers of a new covenant. And the new covenant teaches that we can uh, boast, not in our own strength, but in the Spirit of God. Here are the requirements of being an elder. Here are the requirements of being a deacon. We read through those in the form. 
In the new covenant, my friends, God teaches us that he gives us his spirit. It's not just the requirements that he gives us. It's not just you have to do this and that and this and that. But you can be sure that he also provides the Holy Spirit of God. And where the Spirit of God is, there is power. And that's why Paul, you know another word, I said that the word boasting occurs so often in 2 Corinthians. Do you want to know another word that occurs more in 2 Corinthians than anywhere else in the Bible? Weakness. And brothers, this is so contradictory, isn't it? I just asked you if you're competent, and I said, yes, you can say yes. But you know what, my brothers, we can boast in our weakness. That's what Paul does. He says, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness, 2 Corinthians 11. In 2 Corinthians 12, on behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weakness. And 2 Corinthians 13, for we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. How this should make us men of prayer. If our strength lies in the Spirit of God coming to us, indwelling us, and empowering us for the work that he's called us to do, brothers, how this should drive us to our knees again and again. I don't think I have to say anything more on that. I think you feel it yourself, don't you? That when we feel our own inadequacy, we must go to the source of strength and find strength in the Spirit of God. We must be men of prayer. I also want to speak in the last place to the wives and the families of these men who serve. We have two Marias, Maria Horches and Maria. Maria Kaltman's not here right now, but she's in the building somewhere. And uh, Kathy Klosterman. You also have a ministry to perform in this regard. Uh, Yes, God does not call you to exercise your gift as an elder, but at the very least, you have a supporting role for your husband as he goes about this work, this difficult, often very taxing work, that you would know it to be your privilege to stand by him and to ask yourself this question, what is my role in this ministry? And I ask you this, uh, uh, dear, dear women, uh, ladies, and, and, and to everyone again, in a special way to you and to you, but to everybody, have you received the Holy Spirit of God? Does every Christian receive the Spirit of God? All of you have to say yes. We know that God gives his Spirit to all those who are united to Christ by faith. Well, my friends, God gives us the Spirit to act, to work, to labor, And that is the calling of every Christian in this assembly today. And so you also have a sacrifice to make, uh, ladies, as you you see your husband go off to another meeting. Uh, And and that can be difficult, and it can be uh, discouraging. But remember, this is a labor and a work that you perform under the new covenant of grace of God. And you can take so much comfort from that, that the Spirit of God also is upon you, The Spirit of God has also anointed you for the work of the ministry. And so you too can go back to your calling and you can find strength in your calling to to persevere uh, through the long hours sometimes, uh, the many meetings, and and sometimes your husband comes home from a meeting worse than he was when he left, right? But uh, again, may the Spirit of God give you the strength that is not your own. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, I I commit this message to you and pray that we would all be ministers of the new covenant of God to support these men in their their roles as leaders and, and that God would bless us as a congregation and bind us together in love and in self denial and in working together 
to establish the kingdom of God in this place. May God grant that it may be so. Shall we pray? Lord, we come before you at the close of this service to confess freely and frankly, Lord, that we are not competent for the work that you've called us to do. And we feel it every day. And we pray, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit coming upon us, you would make us to be competent. Lord, we know that without your Spirit, we are nothing. But with your Spirit, we are everything. Lord, there's nothing we cannot do, nothing we cannot accomplish. There's no task we cannot perform. And when we are weak, Lord, you are strong. And we would this morning even boast in our weakness, O Lord, because we know that in our weakness, your strength is made manifest and your power is made clear. Lord, we pray for the brothers who will assume their offices even now. And we pray, Lord, that as they begin this work, they would do so with a profound sense of your presence with them, that they would do so with a profound sense of your call being upon them, and that with your call, Lord, you give also all that is needed to perform that call. Bless these brothers also when the going gets difficult. Lord, will you encourage them and strengthen them. And grant that we might work together as, as brothers uh, in, towards a common goal, a common call that we have to establish the kingdom of God, to seek first the things of the kingdom of God. And Lord, we do pray for uh, the wives of these men, the families of these men. And Lord, we pray that you would bless uh, them also and that you'd give them all that they need to support their husband and to carry on their own work, their own calling and the own work of ministry which you've called them to do. And Lord, we commit ourselves then into your hands and pray that you would bless and keep us and make us to be faithful, faithful ministers of the new covenant. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in the blue hymnal now to number 463. Number 463 will sing, He leadeth me, O blessed thought. O words with heavenly comfort fraught, whate'er I do, where I be, Still tis God's hand that leadeth me. Let's sing a verse, let's sing just verse one, just verse one of 463 in the blue hymnal.
Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.